Hello, and welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching, learning, community, conversation, and your digital life, made for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tkamlupste Sequatm within the unceded traditional lands of Sequatm Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And um, I'm still thinking about AI. Sorry, I know we did this two weeks ago, but the robots, you know, still still coming. Uh, <laughs> let's get into it. So I have to confess that part of the reason why AI is absorbing all of my thinking energy right now is because looking ahead to the digital detox this January, the team is going to be tackling artificial intelligence and education. What should we be watching for? Where is it going? I want to think about things like how AI impacts our equity practice. I've been reading some really distressing things about AI models and the kinds of ways in which institutions might choose to present themselves as having a strong EDI framework in place when actually there's very little true engagement with minoritized communities. I'm really concerned by some of the ethics around where the body of work is taken from. AI is on my mind. And so uh, it's on your mind too. Sorry. (laughs) For fun though, uh, I thought it might be good to talk this stuff out with someone who is as equally um, trepidatious and paranoid as myself. So obviously I've invited the boss on. Brian Lamb's joining me today to play a little bit with AI and to have some hopefully enlightening conversations. I have to confess, it goes pretty dark today. And a part of that is because, you know, coming out of the pandemic and hoping for massive structural change within our sector and not seeing it (laughs) makes me anxious about our capacity to face down the robots. The reality is that the changes that AI might require of us, uh, they may actually be really good. You know, we talked about some of the pedagogical implications around writing last time we talked about this two weeks ago. I'm not, I don't hate that. (laughs) I think a lot of that is really necessary work. And at the same time, I wonder about our institutional capacity for change. And I don't mean that about like our institution. I mean like institutional sector-wide capacity for change. Brian and I are going to talk about all of that. So maybe, maybe I'll let him take it from here. Hello and welcome to our podcast, where today we have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Lamb, the Director of Learning Technology at Thompson Rivers University. Brian has been with the university for over 10 years, leading the implementation and integration of new technologies in the classroom to enhance student learning and engagement. With a passion for innovation and a commitment to accessibility, Brian has been instrumental in the success of Thompson Rivers University's online learning initiatives. We're excited to hear from Brian today about his work and the future of technology and education. Brian, in what ways does Thompson Rivers University prioritize the ethical use of technology in the classroom and in student learning? Thompson Rivers University prioritizes the ethical use of technology in the classroom and in student learning in a number of ways. First, the university has developed a comprehensive set of guidelines and policies that outline the ethical use of technology in teaching and learning, including principles such as fairness, respect, responsibility, and transparency. 
These guidelines provide a clear framework for educators and students to follow when using technology in the classroom and help to ensure that technology is used in an ethical and responsible manner. Additionally, the university offers a range of training and support for educators and students on the ethical use of technology in teaching and learning. This could include workshops and seminars on topics such as digital citizenship, online safety, and responsible use of technology, as well as ongoing support and guidance from technology experts and educators. This helps to ensure that all members of the university community are aware of the ethical considerations related to technology use and are equipped with the knowledge and skills to use technology in an ethical and responsible manner. Furthermore, the university actively encourages dialogue and discussion around the ethical use of technology in teaching and learning. This could involve hosting events and forums where students, educators, and other stakeholders can share their perspectives and experiences, as well as engaging in ongoing research and evaluation to better understand the ethical implications of technology use in the classroom. By fostering an open and inclusive culture of ethical reflection and dialogue, the university can ensure that the ethical use of technology remains a top priority in its teaching and learning practices. Okay, I cannot maintain this bit any longer. <laughs> no, I don't want to do it anymore either. <laughs> so um, both the introduction for Brian and the questions and that answer um, were all, all written by ChatGPT today. That's right. We are already obsolete. So there's a few things I note about, we've been back and forth this morning with questions and responses the AI has has written. And I'm fascinated with it in a bunch of ways. One is just the high level, like, baffle gab <laughs> that AI produces, right? Like, lots of the right words, very little actual content. Of course, the AI can't speak to, like, specific things we do around the ethical use of technology. So it just speaks in vague generalities. But I got to tell you, Brian, and like, mm -hmm. you know, no shade to administrators, but um, <laughs> there's something very administrative about the way yes. ChatGPT speaks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've said this before. Uh, I know I have to, the, to us in, in casual conversation. People talk about, you know, the impacts on uh, student grading and, and essays and stuff. And I'm sure I'd, I'd love to talk to you a bit about how you're thinking about that. But I really think the first wave that's really going to, and I hate to use this word, but I think in this case, it's worth using, you know, disrupt organizations. It's going to be an administration. It's going to mm -hmm. be, because one of the hardest things actually I find about my job is writing official documents because it's so important to follow forms and to use certain words and, and, and phrases in certain ways. And to be divergent from that is a big no-no. You know, like if you're doing an assessment or you're writing a policy, it's, or you're putting a submission forward to a committee that's official form is everything. And I actually find that kind of writing really hard to do because I'm mm -hmm. like trying to put some sort of meaningful content into these forms and these rituals in, in the text. So AI does that really well. And it doesn't find, you know, it doesn't spend time kind of agonizing about how to make this stuff meaningful. People like me, honestly, I think will be in the crosshairs for what we supposedly provide as value to the institution. Well, one of the things I find sort of fascinating is the way it tries to, well, the way it tries to sound human, the way it tries to evoke tone. Like something we were playing with this morning is when I asked it to give me the question prompts, I specifically said that I wanted the questions to demonstrate ethic of care thinking. And I don't think it knows what that is. It just tries to make the questions sound nicer, right? So I got a lot of words like inclusive and accessible, both in your introduction and in the questions that it generated for me to use today. But 
the content of the questions doesn't really shift, right? So it wants to ask you a question about how you implement technologies. And if I push it on the ethic of care thing, then it adds the word inclusive to that question. But the question itself doesn't actually really change from ask to ask, if that makes sense. No, and it did the same thing in the answers too. Another thing I I just wanted to note, I said this to you a little bit offline. I was playing on the weekend myself because we talked about maybe doing this as an intro joke. I asked it to generate like a dialogue on a podcast about artificial intelligence in the university. Mm-hmm. And I, I, at first I said, host Brenna and guest Brian. And the questions coming from host Brenna, like were very deferential and very basic. And then the, for the expert, Brian, and I thought, oh, that, yeah, that's just not, <laughs> everyone will know that that's not what's happening. <laughs> so I, I started to play with it a little bit and I just put the names in. And it kept going back to that format. And I don't know if it was gendered. I didn't actually try reversing or like I didn't make myself the host. I found it fascinating that even when I kind of stripped out host and guest from the the, the prompt, that it kept kind of pushing that paradigm where um, Brian is the expert and Brenna is the person kind of asking these very open-ended questions. Yeah, it definitely has a sense of what kinds of questions would be acceptable. Like it's it's almost circumscribed by its own notion of what the audience is. So when you tell it it's a podcast, you know, it generates the questions, but yeah, they're very like broad. They're pretty vague. And even if you ask it to take like a I at one point I asked it to demonstrate critical pedagogy in the questions and it was just like, yeah, I don't I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Here's the same questions again. <laughs> But you know what it's been doing really well? I mean, again, not to circle back to my point, it, um, uh, we have a colleague who's been like firing policy prompts into it, mm-hmm. and it's generating stuff that's pretty close. And at the very least, you know, a human being can just go through it and pull out, you know, some of the obvious clunky phrases and put in some local context that may not be in the in the output. It works well. And again, because it does understand the format of a policy really well. Well, this is my general worry with... AI generated text is that so often we're sort of just invited to scan, right? A document. We're not invited to engage deeply with it. And a lot of the kind of documentation we see around ed tech ethics, around EDI, around inclusive practice, around accessibility, like they're either content neutral or they're content absent, right? Like the goal is to tick a box and to achieve a document that looks like it is meaningful without actually having to commit to anything that might later on be a liability, right? AI is great at making text that won't make you liable to actually do anything. It, it really is like a skilled BSer. Like it really yes. is. Like one of the fun things we did on our team was we fed some Moodle support questions into it, and the answers were really authoritative. And I'm a, I realized how rusty I am with Moodle support. The team's been great to me this year. I have not done nearly as much hands-on support the last number of months than, than I had in the last couple of years. And I, when I read it, when I read it, I was like, wow, like that's pretty good, you know? And then people piped in. Uh, answer two is a complete disaster. Answer four <laughs> would, you know, delete the course, uh, you know, <laughs> but it was so confident 
And, oh, and, yeah. and, and it had the tone of a, actually, I don't, I'm glad we don't talk quite like that because it's a little arrogant. Like it's really sure of itself when it gives the answer. It inspires confidence. It didn't make sense, but the response sounds like it made sense. You know, like I could see someone very diligently trying to follow the steps that it had laid out and getting into some trouble. But yeah, you're right. There's this sort of bravado or confidence, this voice that it writes in, unless you specify the parameters, like you ask it to, you know, try to use ethic of care as the example for today. But if you don't include that, it talks like a tech bro, right? Like everything it spits out is extremely confident and simultaneously often <laughs> quite vapid. And I, I'm fascinated by that because you can, it, it gives you a sense of who is training the tool, right? That it speaks with such a sense of confidence in itself. I, 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 there, there's that um, piece, you know, John Warner has had a lot to say on this lately, and I know you've boosted some of his comments into timelines. He was highlighting the fact that so many of the assignments that are being handed out can be crushed by this this AI, you know, says a lot about the questions. And I've, quite a few people have made that observation, but then he followed up to kind of say, it really just highlights how much we're trying to make people act like machines. Yes. And uh, not just in the classroom, you know, no. again, you know, uh, administration to bang that drum yet again. Classic example of that. John Warner's been talking for a long time about the problem with writing instruction in universities is that we are constantly trying to create a simulation of a research paper. And he's been arguing that since he wrote uh, Why Why They Can't Write, which was like, I don't know, 2018, maybe. I think he's he's finding quite a moment at the moment because the strategies that he suggests for getting students out of this mold of trying to create a facsimile of a research paper in a context neutral space, those are also strategies for overcoming the way AI answers questions. You know, I think it's really telling that there was such a panic immediately about, oh, well, the essay is dead as a form because the essay has never scaled particularly well when it's written well, right? Like a five paragraph essay scales mm -hmm. well because it's really easy to go like tick, tick, tick. That's why, you know, standardized tests ask for it. But a thoughtfully composed essay doesn't scale well because it needs to be read carefully. And that's not what ChatGPT is disrupting. <laughs> ChatGPT is disrupting poor essay writing, but unfortunately that is the majority of what we call on students to do a lot of the time. So I find this whole discourse really interesting because much like previous quote unquote disruptions that we've had ethical qualms with before, like video proctoring or whatever, it's really pointing to problems in the way we imagine learning and the box we've sort of got ourselves trapped in by trying to operate universities at these massive scales that makes it really hard to change course. So you taught writing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even here, you know, you've made writing kind of one of your, you know, areas of specialization. You did a lot of H5P activities about composition and kind of the more open-ended way of using H5P. And you revised a composition textbook last year with a lot of H5P objects and stuff like that. So if you were teaching full-time again, would you have been okay with the way you were teaching already? And if if so, you know, what were the things that made you okay? And if not, what would you be rethinking right now? What would you be trying to do differently, do you think? I think I would be rethinking the kinds of like one paragraph responses that I used to use as a way of sort of checking in on students keeping up with the readings. I think I would those prompts were often very general and open-ended with the intention of giving students lots of space to play. But I think those same kinds of open-ended questions 
I don't I don't know that the AI answers would get good marks from me, but I think it's a it's a situation where you're giving students enough rope to hang themselves, right? Like you're you're asking a question that is inviting them to go and test and see what the what the GPT does. I think my composition instruction would have been okay because I was already following a model very much like the one Warner outlines, but I think what would change in my practice is I would be putting my prompts into ChatGPT in class. And we'd be taking them apart together. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. actually a pretty exciting part of what you can use this tool for, which is a teaching tool in the classroom to try to break students of those habits of writing just super empty prose, which a lot of students come to university already in that habit because they've just been kind of filling space. Getting them to write concretely is the hardest part. But the great thing about ChatGPT is you can see what writing that lacks concrete examples looks like and how how vapid it is, how boring it is, and how it doesn't answer the question. And so I think that aspect of it could be a lot of fun. One of the hardest things when you're doing composition instruction is writing essays that are convincing enough that you can take them apart in class, but bad enough that there are things to take apart, if that makes sense, like writing the sample essays. I, like, I think this is a huge labor saver from the perspective of writing those sample essays. It's great. And when you ask it to put in citations, it does the, just the most fantastically lazy job of it. It's great. <laughs> Can I ask a follow-up question? I think it's going to enrage you, but I, um, I've been wondering how you would respond to it. Uh, okay. So this, this is like a question I saw posed and I was like, I wonder what Brenna would do if she saw it. <laughs> um, the, it, it, was, it was kind of in response to the discourse that was emerging out of a lot from people like Warner and you and, and a number of other people that teach rhetoric, it seems. It seems like the rhetoric people are way ahead on the thinking here. It was like, okay, yeah, that's all great. You know, say create more dynamic, you know, thoughtfully embedded, you know, thought embedded into writing, I think is one of the ways that Warner puts it and really emphasize that someone put for the point is some students are at such a troubled space in their ability to write that they almost need the ritual of writing through very simple, almost thoughtless statements just to get the mechanics of writing in place. And that forcing them to kind of cognate when they do it, it it, it almost pulls them away from what they need to do, which is just literally learn the mechanics of writing. So when I, when I saw that, I mean, I kind of had my own response, but I was curious what you thought. Uh, I, st- students write better when they care. Like, it's always been true. And the hardest thing about so many academic writing courses, the way they're structured, is that students are asked to write an essay about some topic they've literally never thought about before. And then we dump them into the research like the peer-reviewed research on like whatever the topic is that they've never thought about before. And then we're surprised when the outcome is empty and they have difficulty wrestling with the concepts, right? There's always been this idea that students should just be able to produce writing on anything when we would never expect that of ourselves, right? Like if you actually try to produce a publishable piece of writing on a topic that you have no investment in or buy-in, for. It's extremely difficult, but we expect students to do it all the time. My big issue with composition, the way we teach it is that we don't invest in what students, individual students already care about. I think there's ways to do that that are less and more labor intensive for instructors, but like in general, I don't buy it that there's like some empty prompt that will unlock students' capacity for writing. I've just never seen it happen. If I cannot take that and then maybe pull back a little bit and maybe mm-hmm. ask you to put on your your thought leader hat. You know? Oh no. Um it's my worst oh. hat. <laughs> it's not a nice hat. It's not no. a flattering hat. No, no. It's a hat. It's not a good hat. Um 
but I mean, I've seen some of this stuff floating around. You know, there are people that are trying to position themselves, right, as the visionaries oh, yeah. here. Actually, and I fed some of these questions into Chat API, and it says pretty much what these thought leaders are saying, which is, you know, again, not unlike my initial answer, says pretty much nothing, you know. Well, of course, there are going to be concerns about this, this, and this. My favorite comment, though, which was just hilarious, was it said, it will dis- decrease people's workloads and free them up to do more uh, real teaching and research. I just, I love the idea that anything would ever reduce a workload, like yes. in, 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 the, in contemporary society, anywhere. I mean, h- how long? have we been hearing about automation giving us more leisure time and look at us now like i just can't believe that even a bot would say that okay so but again the thought leader thing i asked the chat bot you know it's like what's going to be the future of universities in in the wake of artificial intelligence like how is it going to affect all this do you have a sense like the big picture where it's going what i hope it does or what it's going to do um, I, I was, I was asking about what you actually think will happen, but you okay. can say what you can, you can be more hopeful if you wish. Oh no, I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. We're just entering another arms race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the academic integrity arms race was first turn it in comes in and then students who want to cheat discover that if you just pay some impoverished writer living in a third world country, uh, they will produce a new essay for you that isn't going to trip turn it in. And so then, you know, then we get, well, stop having students write and have them do high stakes exams and have them video proctored, right? Like that's that's the escalation that we see. Um, and students are always ultimately harmed by that, right? We see the way those kinds of contract cheating companies use blackmail. We, we know that the, some of them are connected to organized crime. We know the harms that e-proctoring does to racialized students, to gender diverse students, to neuroatypical students. Like ultimately the harm always lands on the students, but we end up in an arms race. I think we'll see the same thing here, right? Like you can't convince me that chat GPT isn't free right now, mostly to just collect data, the kinds of questions that we're likely to ask, the things that are causing us anxiety about AI are exactly the things that we're feeding into ChatGPT right now. And so, I mean, it's a matter of time, right, before we have not an originality detector like we have with Turnitin, quote unquote, um, but an AI detector will come and it'll be embedded in the learning management system and it'll have all our students' data. Like it'll, it'll, it's just going to keep happening. And then someone else is going to develop some AI tool that somehow gets around that. And we're just off to the races again. And the great part is that we get to pay for all of it. Public institutions <laughs> sell out huge sums of money to private ed tech companies to solve these problems that we've created ourselves. Like it's going to be great. There already is a uh, chat GPT-2 output detector demo out uh, from Hugging Face, which I believe also comes from Open. AI. So they're having an arms race with themselves, from what I can tell. I saw, I did see someone put their own book through that tool, and uh, it said that their book was generated by AI. The person was like, I was very surprised. Can you imagine a more insulting phrase at this point? Uh, So how about bigger though? Like, so how long, if not already, until this stuff is being used to generate multiple choice questions for an exam Mm. or, or learning content itself? Like, again, talk about content where following formal rules of structure and being predictable, you know, and, and winnowing out. I mean, it, not all content is like this, but, you know, I've seen learning content, certainly, that clearly went through a process to take any trace of uniqueness or idiosyncrasy or voice out of it. I don't want to guess on a when, but it it worries me in the same kind of way that, like, you know, we've had these very difficult – I'm going to rewind. We are often in a very difficult place 
morally and ethically within the university because we see a lot of stuff (laughs) and a lot of it is wonderful practice. We have a lot of people at this institution who care a great deal, but we also unfortunately are kind of the first line of seeing poor practice. And so, you know, I'm thinking about the number of times we've had to have discussions because someone is using a textbook generated question bank and the questions are wrong. The answers are incorrect. And term after term after term, we have students coming to us and saying like, hey, these questions in Moodle are wrong. And we go to the instructor and, you know, maybe the instructor corrects it for the individual students who complain, but clearly the question bank itself is never being corrected or updated because the problems come term after term. That kind of stuff has always upset me because oftentimes students are paying for the pleasure, right? Like that's a proprietary textbook at least that they've bought, even if they're not being required to use the homework system. That stuff upsets me. And so to think that there's going to be a further potential step removed where, I don't know what, you feed the chapter into into ChatGPT and it generates 100 multiple choice questions? I don't know. My worry is there is always a subset of faculty who aren't going back to check that. I don't know if I care that someone is going to use it to generate the first pass of their multiple choice questions. Like multiple choice questions suck to write. It's one of the worst things. It's why I hate them and I don't use them because they're really awful to write. It's very awful. It's hard to write a persuasive multiple choice question. So, you know, maybe that's the first pass. It comes through AI because they get the form and the structure right. I don't know that I hate that. What worries me is that anytime something is pitched as sort of a labor-saving option for faculty, if it's really treated that way, and nobody ever goes back to reread and nobody ever double checks that work, then the person who is harmed by that is ultimately, again, always the student, right? It's like it's like Cory Doctorow's shitty tech adoption curve. The only person who ultimately gets harmed um, is the person who is most marginalized in the context. And in, in our case, that's students. To step back a further level of abstraction, you know, how much of this stuff is going to end up driving, you know, whether we acknowledge it or not, admissions, awards, financial assistance, counseling. I worry about things like AI-driven mental health counseling as a Mm. cheaper alternative that universities can buy into, or even just as a first step triaging of students. Mm. I worry about where that data would be held. You're identifying a problem that is real and also that already exists, right? So admissions are already heavily skewed towards students who know how to take tests well, who are able to maximize their use of existing resources, whether that's test prep or tutoring or whatever. There's always going to be students who game ChatGPT better. There's no way this is going to be free forever, right? There's going to, there's going to be a paid version of this that some mm-hmm. students will access and others won't. So yeah, I think equity issues are really very real. Again, as long as the entry essay prompt is being marked by Like I think about things like AccuPlacer, right? So AccuPlacer determines your English language competency. Can you put your AccuPlacer question? It's marked by AI. Can you also write it with AI? And like, it's just whose robot is better? You know, I mean, there's, there's an absurdity to all of this that really, if you drill down, it comes to the fact that we've been measuring compliance instead of learning for like a long, long time. And these tools are really, really good at performing compliance. Some of what you were talking about, you know, like the quality of the AI and, and who gets what. I, I heard a discussion last week where someone made the point that there's a kind of a place like where chat GPT, it, it builds on a body of text that exists, right? And, and it reads that. But how much of that text is itself now being generated by AI? 
So it kind of is feeding on itself and, and becoming more and more kind of locked inside its own group, much like my Spotify uh, algorithms, because I listen to Spotify um, a lot um, for reasons I won't get into. It, it the, the algorithm, whenever I ask it to generate uh, playlists, keeps narrowing over time. And if I listen to the playlists that it generates for me, then it even further narrows down what it'll give me when I ask it for recommendations. It's mm -hmm. kind of, it's making me a more conservative music listener if I don't make mm -hmm. an active effort to, to disrupt its recommenders. So, and the thing is, I listen to Spotify, it's kind of my lazy comfort listening. You know, if I want to listen to adventurous music, I go somewhere else. It's, I can feel it like making me less. And oh my gosh, when it gives me the year in review stuff, like it's just humiliating. <laughs> the point though, you know, the idea that we may have already passed a point where the, the source that the AI will be feeding on is already going to be so clotted up with crud, but maybe there'll be free ones that are clotted up with it. And then, you know, you'll be paying for the ones that maybe have like a curated data set or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, it's already, you know, any number of services offer free captioning or free transcription, right? So like YouTube, uh, Office 365, the paid version of Zencaster, which we're using here, they'll all spit out a transcript for you. They don't touch the quality of if you pay for machine transcription, even if you pay for machine transcription elsewhere, right? So mm -hmm. Rev offers a machine transcription function that is so vastly superior at identifying individual speakers and, and picking up sort of slang or, or slurred speech or anything like that. I think that that's exactly it, right? There's always going to be a free tool that you can access that's maybe good enough. But if there's one thing tech will never actually do, no matter how much it claims, it's democratize, right? There's always going to be uh, a paid version, a better version that only some people will have access to. And I think too, you know, one thing I find really interesting about the chat GPT is that if you ask it questions that are too specific, it, it's very quick to tell you that it doesn't have access to an internet search. But once those two things get coupled together, right, the AI composition and the Google search to see what other people are actually sort of saying about the topic, I mean, that's going to be wild, right? Like that's the, going to be the next level, particularly when it comes to vapid research papers, right? Because isn't one of the reasons they're cutting that off because it, it just opens up too many unknown variables. And that's when you start getting like Nazi propaganda in your answers and stuff. Well, this is exactly it, right? But one of the things that people have noticed is, you know, ChatGPT is claiming to be a fairly sort of safe platform at the moment, which yeah, no internet search capability, because we've learned that every time you train chatbots on the open web, you make Nazis 10 times out of 10, right? So they're trying to circumvent that. But you can say to it, answer this question in the style of a right-wing shock radio DJ, and mm -hmm. it'll do it, and it'll spit out some pretty horrific stuff. So I got one more question for you, and I don't know if this takes us into too dark territory. You may want to cut it later. I can't help but, like, when I say, okay, here, whatever, you know, whether it's hyped the way that that Atlantic Monthly article about the essay being dead, you know, you know, whatever vision is coming, I mean, something... There is going to be some changes here. We have to rethink something, right? But will we? I, I, no. I, 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 that's, that's, I guess I can't help it. And I'm not, this is not me, I swear, um, making a, a comment about our specific university because the, everything I'm about to describe, is, as far as I can tell, is pretty much universal, at least in North American higher education. Just having gone through, you know, the latest big disruption, the pandemic, and seeing how we processed that and responded to that. And I don't know, I, I feel like there's been almost like a, 
conscious unwillingness not to reflect and learn from whatever we've gone through together. Oh yeah. It's called trauma. Fair, you know, and, but, but, you know, but that would be okay too. Like if, if somebody would get up and say, Hey, wow, we're all in collective trauma right now. That would, I would really welcome that. That would, to me would be the mark of a real leader, but it's Mm -hmm. quite the opposite. You know, they're trying to pretend that it never happened. And again, I'm not singling anyone out because it's extremely almost universal among leadership. And I don't know if that's because they don't feel they can open up that conversation. I mean, I get that it's difficult and fraught. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, you kind of already answered (laughs) when I said it. Like, I, I, I just, I have grave concerns that our culture is just not resilient and curious enough to, to deal with this. Yeah. We're higher ed is rigid and not resilient. I think that's the lesson of the pandemic, right? I think I look at the lecture form and the high stakes exam and the fact that even through the pandemic, those two forms did not reduce their stranglehold on the institution. And we're still told, well, this is the only way to deliver a massive amount of content to a massive number of students is to lecture at them. Okay. Uh, are there any, anybody have any follow-up questions to, to the structure that we've worked ourselves into? And likewise, the high stakes exam, right? Well, this is what the regulator requires. This is what the accreditation board requires. So we're stuck. I think that as a system, we lack curiosity and imagination. We lack the ability to wonder if what we're doing is right, which is amazing when you consider the fact that we are research institutions, right? And we have all kinds of data that show the problems with both lectures and high stakes exams. And yet. Yes. Yeah. No, I I agree. Um, And I've seen comments that probably the most likely immediate response from higher ed to some of this stuff is going to be doubling down on in-person invigilated exams. Yeah. And I think that you know, that's the first thing everybody says is, well, students need to do more in-class writing. Well, I actually do think that students do need to do more in-class writing. They need to have more more learning time, more classroom time dedicated to process. I mean, ultimately, if we want to get at what the core problem here is, it's that we care about product and we don't care about process. And instructors are in a situation where they feel like they have too much content to cover. You know, coverage is king. We have to get through all this material. I can't possibly spend the time on also, you know, teaching them to write. I can't possibly spend the time on also teaching them how to be assessed. And as long as that's the case, as long as the final product is the only thing the teacher sees, we're never going to get out of this. They do need to do in-class writing, but they don't need to do in-class high stakes exams. They need to get messy with writing together in a classroom with an instructor who's giving them feedback all the time. And we've effectively created a precarious workforce with too many students and not enough time. And we've made that part an impossibility. I mean, it was, that's, that's why this works, right? If we were actually caring about process, if we were reading students writing all the way along in a term, ChatGPT could be whatever it wanted to be. It, It wouldn't matter. And I think at the core, that's the problem. And I, it, it's starting to feel like a problem that is unsolvable. Not not to end our chat on a total bummer note, but you know, I don't know how we solve that problem. I think you know, and the kind of you know stuff that you're describing as strategy that I agree that at least in its current form, the chat AIs can't touch is you know when you get into process and you break it down and you have that really engaged relationship throughout the entire steps of putting a project together, but. That's why I kind of referred to the workload thing jumping out at me before, because I think a very plausible 
medium term scenario is that we get some really good grading tools that come out that can like yeah. eliminate or really reduce the burden of a certain type of grading. And you know, no one likes doing that kind of grading. And it, yeah, it won't be able to pull out every little bit, but it could tell you, you know, did it refer to three different sections of the reading? Is it internally consistent? Is the grammar solid? You know, and it could do kind of that, that stuff. And then theoretically, you know, it'll be pitched and, you know, the faculty member can then really focus and look for the unique ideas and things like that. that. That's how they'll pitch it. But I just can't help but think, okay, if a tool like that becomes available, how long until people that make the budgets at our institutions go, well, then obviously now we can have bigger classes. We, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to be like you have more time to do process work. Like, oh, I just, it never is. I can't, ima- I can't imagine that being the response. I hope I'm wrong. It's just, it's, it's so flies in the face of what we've seen as a response in our sector to almost every development that we've seen in my period, you know, at time as a learning technologist at a university. And again, it's, it's everywhere. I've been at, I've, I've seen it in a lot of different contexts. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. It's how this works. Well, as long as the priority from a budgetary perspective is to maximize the number of humans moving through and to maximize what they pay versus what is paid to instructors, which means maximizing the number of bodies in a classroom. I mean, if that's the goal, then that's that's the ultimate goal. I just wish we would be honest about it because if that's the goal, then learning is, is not happening. Learning is at best secondary, but what you're evaluating for is compliance. And that's true of many of the kind of, you know, articulated tests or regulated Uh, exams, all of these things are primarily measures of compliance. And if that's what we're doing, we could be honest about it, but we won't. We will call it learning, even though we all know that is not a demonstration of learning because that's that's not how learning works. Learning is a lot, a lot messier. And it's a lot messier than anything chat GPT can spit out. And as long as we're prioritizing something that's easy to read and clean looking over the messiness of hands-on teaching and learning, then chat GPT will, will have a place. But if we can change what it is we prioritize, we might actually be able to get ahead of this stuff. But I don't think we will. So (laughs) (laughs) we're not good thought leaders. No, no, I'm a terrible thought leader, (laughs) terrible thought leader, because, you know, thought leaders like really simple answers to really difficult questions. And, um, yeah, neither one of us have ever been very good at that. <laughs> I think uh, I think we'll end it here. I should have done a chat GPT closing remark, but I didn't. Are you going to get it to generate your tiny teaching tip? I should. I should see what it comes up with for a tiny teaching tip. I bet it's going to make me really mad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time today, Brian. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you, Brian. It's always so much fun to talk. So that is it for Season 3, Episode 9 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca, and I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. You know, Brian suggested I ask ChatGPT to leave you with our teaching tip this week. So I did. I uh, I said to ChatGPT, please fill in the following prompt for the end of a podcast called You Got This about teaching and learning. The prompt is, I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. And today's tiny teaching tip is, and ChatGPT offers this.
I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. And today's tiny teaching tip is to always believe in yourself and your abilities as a teacher. You got this. So keep pushing forward, keep trying new things, and don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. Your students will benefit from your confidence and enthusiasm, and you'll be a better teacher for it. Thanks for joining us today on You Got This, and we'll see you next time for more tips and tricks for teachers. Okay, honestly, promise me, if you ever can't tell the difference between me and ChatGPT, you will just put me out of my misery. Please, just promise. (laughs) If I ever come to you with that level of vapidity. I hope that you will stop listening at that point, my friends. (laughs) My real tiny teaching tip is that you should go and play with uh, ChatGPT. I've included a link in the show notes. I think you should go mess around with it. I think you should see what it has to say about your discipline. I think you should feed it some of your prompts. I think that's how we learn. I don't think you need to use phrases like, keep pushing forward, trying new things, and don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. (laughs) Please. Promise me you will always be able to tell the difference between me and ChatGPT. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. And we'll see you next time for more tips and tricks for teachers. Bye.